Hey there. Welcome to Chief End, episode six. Uh, back in the saddle, actually got a pop filter. Um, stepping up the podcasting game, uh, which is an exciting time for 2018. Uh, this pop filter, I was testing the audio levels, and it's uh, quite a bit better on um, catching the P's and S's and any time that I scream incoherently into the microphone. Uh, today, last time we visited, we revisited the prayer of Jabez. Um, you can go back and listen to that episode in December. Um, today, I want to talk about something that I've been pondering for the last several weeks, uh, kind of very specifically. Um, and it's an observation that has been probably 20 years in the making, uh, going from big non-denominational megachurch to smaller, uh, kind of middle-sized, medium, uh, middle-of-the-road, medium-sized EV-free church uh, to then sort of the young, restless, and reformed uh, crowd where they sort of have a, a denominational statements, but not really because they're all kind of one-off um, individual standalone churches, even though they kind of loosely affiliate around the reformed vein of the gospel coalition. Uh, and, and then, you know, since 2008, uh, being in the Presbyterian vein of the church, uh, first in the EPC, um, and then when that pastor retired and, uh, the church kind of disassociated itself, um, we've been in the PCAs, uh, since. So, um, lots of uh, broad experience, and as I've said before, I have family members who are currently employed in the industry slash machine slash whatever of uh, professional occupational full-time ministry. Um, one is in a non-denominational kind of senior pastor ruled gig, and the other one uh, actually recently was uh, terminated. <laughs> in a uh, famous multi-site endeavor. Uh, he raised objections to uh, some of the things that Mark Driscoll had said and did, and people in that particular movement uh, were not very pleased with him, and he was, uh, over the course of a few months, shown the door. Um, so he is currently in the boat that a lot of young uh, ministry guys find themselves in, I think, in American church today, where... Uh, you feel the call of God, and I can relate to this myself, um, because as I've said in the past, I I bypassed playing a college sport at a Division One level in order to quote unquote assume or or you know respond to the higher call of God, uh, which was at the time full time ministry. And what I've what I've noticed is I think it's actually. The more the older I get, the more uh, cynical I become, um, and and it's a juggling act of trying to balance experience and and the whole kind of idea behind you fool me once, shame on me, you know, or you shame on you, you fool me twice, shame on me. It's kind of trying to balance the wisdom that comes with getting burned and seeing uh, flaws in systems with joy and hope in the Lord and, you know, assuming the best. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So it's a fine balance. And 
I think too oftentimes I do default, I do land on the cynical side. Um, but if you've been around American evangelicalism for any, any length of time, the pattern exists where young guys feel a call to the ministry. A lot of times it's a call or it's a desire to want to have influence in the church. Um, they want to be in on the ground floor of some perceived new movement of God. So they link arms, you know, 20 years ago, they were linking up with Louis Giglio and Mark Driscoll and um, Rob Bell and, you know, CJ Mahaney at one point. And so these young guys, they see what's called a move of God. And then that is tainted with just fallen sinful desires for wanting to be successful, wanting to be famous, wanting to have a platform, uh, wanting to have influence. And at least in the non-denominational realms where seminary is not required in order to be a pastor, um, I think you get a lot of people, a lot of young guys forsaking either traditional college or forsaking learning a trade or forsaking developing a skill. And so they, they get in on the ground floor, so to speak, of a non-denominational non-seminary degree required, no seminary degree required to be a pastor. And they, you know, spend two years or three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years doing that. And then if something changes and they're, they no longer are a good fit for that particular, uh, you know, viewpoint or outlook on church, uh, they're, they resign or they're fired or they're kicked to the curb or they're squeezed out in some sort of power struggle. And then they're, they go from making $100,000 a year or more down to really only having the skills to support maybe a $10 or $15 an hour job. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, thankfully, when I exited after seven years or so uh, working in youth ministry, you know, I, I hadn't climbed the influence ladder um, to the degree that some of these people had. So, you know, I hadn't gotten locked into, you know, a, a reasonably sized salary that was not commensurate with my actual education or, you know, skill or trade. Um, so making the transition into the business world was, I think, for me, at least on a financial front, a little smoother than some of these guys and, and friends and relatives that I know have, have gone through. Um, one instance comes to mind where a guy was making a little over $100,000 a year, and he is asked, you know, no longer sees eye to eye with leadership, so he's squeezed out. And he's been doing that for 20 years. Straight, all, practically straight out of high school, he's been doing that. And, you know, you have a wife and several children, and you don't have any marketable skill. You don't have a degree. You don't have work experience. Your entire work experience is wrapped up in serving the vision of, of whoever the, the senior pastor or the leader was of that particular uh, church structure. Um, so based upon that observation, um, I think it contributes to the the other observation that I want to talk about today, which is the title of this podcast, namely that we we being you know non-denominational, young, restless, and reformed, PCA, uh, 
even even EPC, all denominations, all kind of movements and, you know, uh, various uh, denominations within evangelicalism, they seek to, what, what happens is we become slaves to the system and not servants of Christ. And that's the title of this podcast. And pause, uh, pause for just a second, take a sip of water. Ah, that's some high quality H2O right there. Um, if you don't drink a lot of water, uh, you should, um, but you should also drink reverse osmosis water. And, uh, this is not a sponsor pitch because obviously I don't have sponsors, (laughs) but I've been drinking reverse osmosis water for, I don't know, 30 years and it's delicious. It's so good. Um, so I get those big old five gallon, uh, big old plastic jugs and get them refilled. And I'm being kind to the environment uh, and not choking out a bunch of sea otters with, you know, thousands upon thousands of 16.9 ounce water bottles every year. So stop choking the sea otters and start buying reverse osmosis water in bulk. End of uh, end of fake non-existent marketing sponsor pitch. There's even a guy, you could go as far as uh, some dude, the dad, there was a dad, uh, one of the friends of some of our kids in elementary school, and he liked reverse osmosis water so much, he actually installed a reverse osmosis system under his kitchen sink, and he was showing it to me, and I was highly impressed. It was several thousand dollars, but he he calculated that it would pay for itself over the life of like 20 years in the home, barring unforeseen repairs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, A little too intense for me, but hey, at least he's not choking out sea otters like the rest of you are. <laughs> so so the the model of recruiting uneducated, untrained, unskilled young men into the ministry plays itself out practically in causing people to become slaves to whatever system they're in versus being servants of Christ. And I've seen this in every single uh vein of the church that I've been involved in over the years. Um and it's interesting because if everyone can't be right, and yet every single one of the veins that I've been involved in, whether it's the non-denominational megachurch, the congregationally ruled EV free structure, the independent young restless and reformed structure, or the very official, very structured PCA um, and EPC, they all lead with the gospel. They all lead with free grace. They all lead with um, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. But as you persist in, in their particular system, they drill down to all of these peripheral uh, peripheral issues that become very important to them. And if any of you have been around the church for any prolonged period of time, you you can relate to this in whatever denomination or whatever tradition you have worshipped in. And so you come into the faith with faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, uh, love God, love God first and foremost, uh, serve Christ, love your neighbor. And inevitably, you always begin to discover the sacred cows in that system. And in the non-denominational uh, megachurch system that I was in, those sacred cows uh, 
were senior pastor rule, the mosaic model. That was a senior, that was a a sacred cow to them. Um, Speaking in tongues was a sacred cow to them. They had these services called afterglows, (laughs) where, as I've said before, if you didn't get enough of the spirit, as the word was being dispensed, you could go into the afterflow room and, uh, you know, put out your your spirit catcher rain funnel things and and just, you know, drench yourself in the spirit while people spoke incoherently in tongues and some unequipped assistant pastor like myself would, you know, moderate the interpretations that people spit out. <laughs> it was like they wanted to be they weren't they they wanted to be a little bit more dignified than the TV people that were getting slain in the spirit and falling over in the aisles. So they didn't want to do that publicly. Um, but they also wanted to give that outlet to the nuts, the nut jobs and the, you know, the uh, emotional people and the dancers and all these people. So they would kick them off into a side nursery room and let them, you know, go to town for 45 minutes and then security would come in and break it up. Um, what were some of the other sacred cows? Um, you know, it was no, supposedly it was no secular music, um, you know, no R-rated movies. It was very sort of externally moralistic. And then as you got to know the pastors and sat in pastors meetings, you know, pastors meetings in that particular environment and in that particular uh, denomination, uh, even though they were non-denominational, they're a big denomination. uh, The pastors meetings just devolved into making fun of people and mocking people in the church. And um, yeah, very, very godly, very spiritual conversations took place in those uh, 90 minute wastes of time. Um, the senior pastor was a sacred cow. Like whatever he said was, you know, was from God. Uh, you know, it was almost papal in that sense that, you know, if the senior, if the senior pastor said, Hey, you know, God has shown me that this is a new ministry I want to pursue, or, you know, this is $15 million worth of new debt I want to take on in order to serve the Lord, i.e. build my name and my brand and my reputation. Um, you couldn't challenge that. Like you couldn't say, eh, maybe we should tap the brakes on taking $15 million worth of debt. Um, if you did, you were shown the door. Um, there was even one older gentleman who was like 75 years old, gentlest, you know, sweetest, oldest saint. And he just kind of volunteered part-time as a counselor in the church. And they actually got a restraining order placed on him uh, because he voiced, you know, counter positions to whatever the, you know, the young hip uh, senior pastor was wanting to do with the church. Um, so then we move into, you know, the EV free structure and, you know, some of their sacred cows come out as con- being congregationally ruled, which is understandable. Um, you see the abuses in the senior pastor model, the mosaic model, where it's, you know, whatever I say is, is equivalent to inspired text almost. Um, and any challenge to that is, you know, met with severe punishment, so to speak. Uh, so I understand the congregation ruled, and I think it makes sense that that's kind of where we reacted to uh, after leaving the mosaic uh, manipulation abuse of, of the senior pastor crazed megalomaniac model. Um, but their, their sacred cow was the congregational rule model. And while understandable, the, the longer you persisted in that particular vein of, of the church, in that particular tradition of worship, it became 
a huge sticking point. Um, their, their seminary preached that. Um, the other, the other sacred cow they had was that you could be like a two and a half point Calvinist. So, you know, they sort of rode the fence on, yeah, we kind of, we kind of go sovereignty. Um, we kind of go that way, but then eh, we want to tap the brakes and not do it too much because we still want to give altar calls and have people raise their hands and come forward and that kind of stuff. Um, and there was, there was little leeway. You, you couldn't, um, you couldn't have an alternate view on the congregationally ruled or on anything more than a two and a half point Calvinist, maybe a three. Sometimes you could get away with being a three point Calvinist. Um, but definitely not limited atonement. Um, you know, if you, even if, even if you went into trying to explore those things, uh, you know, you really, you really couldn't. So then we move into the young, restless and reformed vein and that particular, you know, that particular vein, the sacred cows are the style of worship, the low lights, um, the candles, um, and in a lot of ways, it mirrored the mosaic model of the senior pastor uh, ruled church, even though the young, restless, and reform boasts in the biblical eldership model. You know, we have we have elders who have equal authority and equal power. That's really just kind of marketing speak, because at the end of the day, if you've been around that, you know that the senior pastor, the teaching elder, the main guy, uh, everybody still follows his lead. Um, and there was no leeway or grace given to, again, counterpoints, counterpositions. Um, if you brought up counterpoints, it was dissent. Um, and that works well in dictatorships, um, but that doesn't work well in non-dictatorships. So if you're trying to build a church to be a dictatorship, then I think a lot of these models make sense. Um, and then as we've gotten into, hold on, another RO, reverse osmosis break, one sec. So with this pop filter, I have to take a different posture than what I I'm used to. So I feel a little awkward and I feel short of breath. It's kind of bizarre. Um, I'm fit and I work out a lot, so I shouldn't be short of breath. But uh, the, the, the posture of standing up while I'm talking is making me feel like I have altitude sickness. <laughs> So then we move into the EPC until the pastor retired. We were there for about three years and their sacred cow is kind of women. Um, you know, women can be deacons and, and they, they sort of draw the line on women can be elders. And that's interesting. They, they will let the main denomination lets each particular presbytery uh, make their own decision on that front. So there are some presbyteries, some presbyteries, I, I've been around PCA Presbyterians for 10 years and I still can't pronounce all their, their silly words. Uh, they basically leave it up to each local place. So I guess, you know, South Florida could say, yeah, we're going to have women elders and West coast of Florida could say, no, we're not going to have women elders. And so then they divide on that. Um, I thought that seems to be kind of the only sacred cow there. They were you know, they were very, they were more lax on baptism. Um, you know, they didn't really have any, uh, kind of, they're, they're probably, they're probably the most laxed, uh, laxed in a good way denomination that I have seen. Um, 
And the only reason we don't, we didn't continue in the EPC is, as I said, the pastor retired, the church dissolved, and there's no PCs within our, EPCs within our area. So from there, we end up in the PCA, and the PCA clearly, as we've gotten to know it more and more over the last six years, definitely has sacred cows. Um, to the point that it's becoming pretty laborious for me to sit through it every Sunday, uh, to the point where it's starting to become a burden to hear them dig their heels in on these sacred cows. One of them is infant baptism. Uh, and, you know, I get it. I, I understand their argument from a covenantal standpoint. I can understand their argument. I can see how they equate, uh, you know, Old Testament circumcision to New Testament infant baptism. I can see at least their logical train of thought. And you ask me, do I agree with it? Well, my answer is we haven't baptized our children. So I obviously don't agree with it enough. I'm not convinced of its merits enough to actually go through with it. So, you know, we've been there six years. Our kids now are 9, 11, 13 and 15. So six years ago, they would have been three, five, seven, and nine. And at the time, um, the elders and the senior pastor kind of put the full court press on us baptizing our children to be, uh, you know, obedient to the word of God and to be obedient to that call to, you know, baptize your family into the covenant promises of God. Um, and they say, you know, they they always, they make the disclaimer well you don't if you if you want to be or an ordained minister in the PCA then you must adhere to this viewpoint but you can be a member of the church and worship with us and not be not not adhere to that point and i think there as i've talked to people in the church there are some who you know are kind of like me where they're a little bit hesitant on it and then there's others that are full on in on it and they're you know baptizing other uh, kids left and right uh but it's definitely a sacred cow. Like you can't, there, there's no room. It's set in their mind. They are correct on this issue and it's set in their mind. And again, if you challenge it, the PCA is pretty good at listening and, you know, hearing out counter arguments, but they're not going to change their view on it. It's, it's set. They, their view is correct. And any alternate view is not correct. Um, the other sacred cow with them is the Sabbatarian movement, um, at least in the PCA that we're in. I know that that's, I think, as I've read, I think that's kind of what caused the division between Westminster in Philadelphia and Westminster West Coast out in California was over this whole issue of the third use of the law. And one of the the practical outcomes of, of the third use of the law is becoming a Sabbatarian. And basically, Sabbatarian believes that the, the, the fourth commandment is binding, that, that the Christian is obligated to observe the Sabbath on Sunday. And as one of the elders in our church said uh, during a small group a while back, you know, we were talking about, well, you know, what about a Christian who's an NFL football player? And he responded kind of snidely with a little bit of a grin on his face. He said, Oh, well, he, he's just working judgment upon his head. Um, and and I, have, I have a friend, actually, who's employed 
uh, in the NFL, not as a player, but on the business admin side, business management, leadership side. And we've talked at length about this. And, you know, if, if Colossians 2.16 didn't exist, and I've, I've brought this up in, in previous, uh, previous podcast on, you know, something about Presbyterians, whatever the title of that thing was, episode four is the fourth commandment binding and why Presbyterians remind me of charismatics sometimes. Uh, go back and listen to that one if you want. Um, but I've talked to my friend who who's employed, and I, I, I discussed this more in length in that other episode. Um, but, you know, God has provided him employment, and he is responsible to that employment and to be a good steward. And so the Sabbatarian movement, the Sabbatarian position would tell him to forsake that employment uh, so that he is not breaking the Sabbath. And as I've said in that other ep- episode, you know, if Colossians 2.16 didn't exist and Sabbath wasn't capitalized there, and pretty much Hebrews 4 through 7 didn't exist and it was ripped out of the Bible, I think I might be more inclined to get on board with the Sabbatarian position. But in all the reading I've done regarding the Sabbatarian position, and all the reading I've done, even in the Westminster Confession, uh, to defend that particular position, there's no reference of Colossians 2.16, and there's no reference of Hebrews 4 through 7. And that's alarming to me. And I tell my kids this, you know, we, we, we actually skipped uh, worship two Sundays ago, and we had a two-hour discussion as a family over the Sabbatarian position. And we read Hebrews 4 through 7. We read Colossians 2.16. Um, and, I mean, we had some really difficult, hard discussions over this topic. And I, I find it disingenuous, as I've said previously, that the Sabbatarian position just kind of snidely dismisses Colossians 2.16. It snidely dismisses Hebrews 4 through 7. And when they do address it, they just write it off as a misreading on my part or on the counter position's part. So it's almost like an intellectual insult, like, oh, well, pfft, you're, you're reading it wrong. You're, you're just not intelligent enough. Um, you haven't seen the light. And I think that's my big issue. And that's the point of this particular episode is, is that sentiment is what is, is the consistent thread through all the veins of evangelicalism that we have been in. That sentiment of, ah, fooey on you. You just haven't seen the light. You're not one of God's chosen. And it's really, I'm, I, my patience for this sentiment is wearing extremely thin across the board. Um, and in a lot of ways, it, it builds up in me resentment towards the church because the idea is, it, it's almost like you feel like you're getting duped like on a timeshare or on a used car salesman or even a new car salesman where my cousin, uh, my wife's cousin, uh, he was on Twitter this weekend and he was complaining about how he went to this Ford dealership and he brought in the internet advertised price and the guy went and ran the paperwork and charged, tried to charge him $4,210 more than what was advertised on the internet. And he was like, wait a second, wait a second. And the guy was like, oh, well, nobody really reads the fine print on the internet. You know, like nobody actually comes in with those prizes. And so he insisted on getting that price and the guy wouldn't budge. And it was like just a bad situation. So he bailed. That's kind of what I feel like the church has done in all of these denominations. 
They lead with free grace. They lead with faith alone, Christ alone. Christ is here to save you. He's your savior. You're a sinner. You're in need of a savior. But then once you get through the door, they, they pull a bait and switch on you. And then they begin to tell you, well, really, really what it means to be a Christian is you have to adhere to our specific requirements that, that the Bible tells us that we need to adhere to. And, and it can't be that way because you can't have four or five different uh, truths that are mutually exclusive. Everyone can't be right. If It's impossible. So the PCA is convinced that they are correct on infant baptism. The PCA is convinced 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are correct on the Sabbatarian position. Well, then what about the other four denominations? And the non-denominational churches are absolutely convinced that tongues is still alive, and they have proof texts, and they're convinced that the Mosaic pastor model is correct, and they have proof texts. You can't have everyone be right. And I'm, I'm growing so weary of this constant, incessant fight between our position is correct, end of story. Um, I'm really losing my patience for this sentiment because it's the thread that runs throughout all veins of the church. And it feels like a bait and switch. It's disenfranchising. It's damaging to people's souls. Um, because you feel like you were duped. You feel like you were tricked. What happened to Christ alone? What happened to faith alone? Well, yeah, on a justification front, but on a sanctification front, we have to make sure that we're speaking in tongues and not watching R-rated movies. Or, if you're a Presbyterian, you have to make sure that you're observing the Sabbath faithfully. Well, it just, it can't be the case. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot have five people, five or five traditions have five different stances and all claim that they're absolutely correct and give proof texts. It's just logically untenable. Um, and I think it happens, it happens because it requires allegiance to the system in order to advance in the organization. And, and that's where I think the real rub is. In order to advance in the structure, advance to be the campus pastor or to advance to be the associate pastor or the executive pastor or whatever it is, in order to advance and get a foothold and to get a, a speaking gig at a conference or a breakout session, it they're asking for your allegiance to their system in order to advance monetarily, reputation-wise, influence-wise. And that is really dangerous. It's very diabolical because played out over the course of 20 years, as I've seen with my brother-in-law's um, with friends, uh, you, you, you slowly drift away from serving Christ and you wake up one day and realize, wow, I'm a slave to this system. And in order to continue to provide for my family, I must continue to promote that, that specific system. Um, 
And it's, it, it's really unfortunate um, because I think what, what I've seen is, is we miss, and, and this was another episode that I previously talked about, making mountains out of molehills in order to avoid actual mountains. So as we dig our heels in on, nope, uh, it's a Sabbatarian, and if you work on Sunday, then you are just working condemnation on your head. Um, or if you don't speak in tongues, then there's no proof that you're a real Christian. And here's our proof texts. Uh, as we're doing that, we're avoiding all of the real mountains, the homelessness, the widows, the orphans. We're, we're missing the boat while we play these little King of the Hill games. And while we stake out our own little territory and the older I get, the more I see it as extremely juvenile. Um, it reminds me of like eight and nine year old boys at summer camp who, you know, get these clicks going. Oh, and we're this tribe and we're that tribe. And oh, we're going to beat you up because you guys are a bunch of jerks. Yeah, well, your mom drools and my dad could beat up your dad. That's what it feels like. It's just a bunch of immature, petulant little boys who happen to be making six figures by doubling down on their system. And I, I have no patience for it. I'm losing my patience for it. Um, and I'm not too sure how to proceed. I've been praying through starting a church <laughs> and actually calling it not another church. Um, and then I've actually been thinking about that, bouncing that around my head for over 10 years. And, and I always, I can never pull the trigger on it because I, I go, well, then I'm going to do the same thing. That structure, that system is going to do the same thing inevitably. And I've been thinking about how to, how do you mitigate that? How do you, how do you keep salvation alone, Christ alone, grace alone? How do you keep that the thing and always the thing? Like, how do you prevent all of these divisions drilling down in the basic, pure, powerful heart religion of the gospel? Like, it seems easy. Um, so maybe I should just pull the trigger on that. But then, then I come back to, oh, well, that's just like Lord of the Rings. Everybody thinks that they can, you know, everybody thinks that they, I can manage the ring. Give it to me. I can manage it. And then they put it on and they turn into, you know diabolical, uh, just, you know, reprobate, uh, dictator, tyrant man. Um, so I'm very, very cognizant and, uh, you know, aware of that fact as well. So, um, but I, I, I just don't understand. I don't see how we can take the simplicity and the purity and the, the power of such a simple gospel and corrupt it with all of these fine print issues, which I'm really convinced at the end of the day are not going to matter one bit. Your stance on whether you, you can speak in tongues or not is not going to matter. Your stance on Sabbatarianism is not going to matter. Your stance on senior pastor rule is not going to matter. And, and I think you see that in Hebrews. Um, and I'm actually going to pull it up so that I don't uh, butcher the scripture. Um, but I think you see that in Hebrews. And I think you see that throughout Christ when he questions the leadership structure. 
and he uses the structure of if you would have known what this meant. And he uses this in relation to the Sabbath. If you would have known what this meant, I desire. Um, see, I, I'm going to mess it up. Do, do, do Hebrews uh, chapter 4. Let's get there. See, this is where I need my actual Bible and not my iPad. I don't like reading on um, iPads because my memory banks put texts on the position where they were on the page. Um, so let's see if you knew what was meant by... Okay, I'm trying to multitask here. This is not working. Um, today, 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 if you hear his voice. So uh, clearly the Sabbath is today. Clearly the Sabbath is more than a day. It's more than Sunday. Just like murder is more than the physical act of killing somebody. And adultery is more than the physical act of physically uniting with a woman who you're not married to. It's much deeper and the Sabbatarian argument is so shallow on this front. Drives me crazy. Um, yeah, I can't do this on my iPad. Um, but but the, the, the structure that Christ uses over and over and over again is if you would have known what was meant by this. And he's clearly getting at a deeper issue. And I feel, my fear is that all of these structures we're just creating different veins of pharisaicalism because we're not, we're not understanding. We're not knowing what is meant by I desire mercy. Um, what does God require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. Ezekiel 16, nine, they had uh, pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but they did not help the poor and needy. Um, we miss the meaning of what Christ and God and redemptive history is all about when we carve off all of these niche points that we then demand allegiance to in order to move and advance throughout the organization. So it's really sad and I'm not too sure not too sure mankind is capable of avoiding that because when you look at the history of the church, it has a horrible, horrible track record of resisting the temptation to carve out non-essential niches, 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 whatever you're going to call them. Horrible track record. Um, even in, even in the, when Christ was on earth, the apostles argue about who's going to be greater. They're carving out their own glory. They're trying to carve out their own position, their own influence, their own position of authority and power and influence and legacy. Um, so I'm not even sure mankind is capable of navigating this. Um, so, you know, maybe that just puts the emphasis back on God's mercy and the fact that love covers a multitude of sins and you know, that, I think that's probably as a human, that's the most practical response to the, these frustrations is love covers a multitude of sins. Um, and judgment is mine, says the Lord. Um, but when you look at how Christ and God, most of the scripture, most of the 
promises of judgment and wrath and displeasure are targeted at God's people. They're, they're targeted at the Pharisees. They're targeted at God's people who've taken his word, taken his truth, and, and twisted it, manipulated it, carved out, um, made it say what they want it to say to support their system. Um, and, and with the exception of, of reading about a very, you know, very, very few individuals, um, from what I gather reading a couple Spurgeon biographies and reading hundreds of his sermons, it appears he navigated that fairly well. Um, but even with that, I know people were critical of the way he ran the orphanages, how he structured the orphanages. Some thought that, you know, he wasn't, uh, making long enough impact. It was just short-term kind of feeding, you know, peasants and not really setting them up for longer term, uh, success and opportunity. Um, so there were critics even then, which isn't surprising. Um, yeah, I, I, so with the exception of a handful of people that I've read about, it seems that man is prone to, even in, even in the church, uh, almost creating their own Tower of Babel dispersion. So God God dispersed the people at the Tower of Babel. It almost seems like um, we're doing the same thing. We, we It's self-imposed now. So instead of unifying around the one resurrected Lord, the, you know, free grace, um, mercy, love, justice, sovereignty, instead of just rallying around those things, we we, we disperse ourselves. We it's bizarre to me. It's very bizarre. And I, and I don't think that man can control it. And maybe that's what Tolkien was after with the Lord of the Rings is just to say, Hey, you know, man thinks they can hold this and manage this and they can't, they, they inevitably turn it to their own ends, um, to create their own systems in order to create their own little power struggles and their own little systems of authority and prestige. Um, and they, they, they create their own gatekeepers. They become gatekeepers and, yeah, and I and I think in the long run, um, and even in the short run, people in need suffer. So while the elders at our church sit around and, you know, batten down the hatches on the Sabbatarian position, you know, like I said before, there's hundreds of homeless people within a five-mile radius of our church. You know, there's, there's 3,600 orphans in the system here in the county. Uh, there are... Yeah, I mean, it's just, you just sit there and scratch your head. So maybe the, maybe the practical outcome for just, you know, myself, the Christian, um, who is tired of doubling down on these carved out positions, um, who just raises, raises their hand and says, hey, hold on, uh, time out, time out. I'm not going to, you're demanding allegiance on this particular niche point. And I refuse to, I refuse to give it. I don't give my allegiance to that. Um, so if you're in that position in your church and you just say, Hey, time out, time out. I'm not going to give my allegiance to that niche position. That's unique to our particular tradition of faith. I think if you can do that, it frees you up to actually do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. It frees you up to take care of widows and orphans. Um, get out of the realm of wasting all of your time, which is limited in like a vapor anyway, fighting these stupid intellectual fights and actually get busy 
doing justice and loving mercy for crying out loud. So that's been my stance. And we've actually been doing that. Um, we, my wife and I have gone through, uh, we are, we are done with the adoption training here in our County. Um, we haven't told, there's two people, two families at church who we've told one, because they actually went through the same process and adopted about seven years ago. And the second family we told because they're active in the foster care system. So it was more of, you know, sitting down and picking their brain for advice. And we asked them not to, you know, publicize it because I'm not interested in turning uh, being merciful and, and loving mercy and doing justice into a program, into a carved out niche, which demands allegiance to it. Um, give your allegiance to the Lord, give your allegiance to him alone Give your heart allegiance to loving him. And the fruit of the Spirit's going to happen. And I think that's what pastors, they, they don't have the courage to embrace that. They don't have the courage to believe that. So they carve out these, these particular uh, molehills. They put up their boundary stakes. And they say, oh, 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 if you're with me, you got to be inside here and you got to wear these colors. And they don't, they don't have the confidence, I don't think, in monergistic regeneration. They don't have the confidence in the Spirit of God. Um, they don't have the confidence in the saving power of Christ to take someone who is self-seeking and loves uh, seeking their own and convert them into seeking the good of others and loving God. They don't believe that. And I think, and I think, and judge not lest you be judged, but I think it's because they haven't experienced that power themselves personally. And that's a very serious thing to consider um, because the system demands allegiance and just because, and, and then giving the allegiance results in influence and power and pastoral positions. But just because someone has those positions doesn't mean that they have experienced the redemptive heart change that comes with loving Christ and loving him first. If you're giving your allegiance to a system in order to have influence and power and monetary stability, I think the story of the rich young ruler and the fact that you can't serve money and mammon, you can't fear God and man at the same time, I think it precludes you from giving your allegiance to Christ. So that's, I think, probably the most sobering thing that I've been considering is the reason that pastors demand allegiance to their systems is because they don't have confidence in the saving, redemptive, converting power of Christ and the Spirit. And I think that is because many of them have not experienced it themselves because they've been distracted and had their soul diluted by giving allegiance to a system instead of Christ. So, heavy things to consider. And, uh, yeah, like I said, why do I even do this podcast? It's depressing. <laughs> Trust Christ. Love God. Here's my new mantra for living, horizontal or vertical sincerity and horizontal simplicity. Um, 
individual sincerity vertically uh, to the Lord. And then horizontal simplicity. Cut away the niche positions. Cut away the all of the allegiances to man's position inside the church. Simple. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. They had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, yet did not care for the poor and needy. Um, if you knew what this meant, get to the heart. Get to the heart issues. Horizontal simplicity, vertical sincerity. Vertical sincerity first, I think will lead to horizontal simplicity. Um, and what I'm reminding myself of on a daily basis is love covers a multitude of sins. So, anyway, that's uh, episode, what is this, episode six, I think. So, have a wonderful day, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed the pop filter. Go get yourself some reverse osmosis water, and uh, we will do this again next time. Later.